Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Yield. I'm Adam Shapiro. Financial markets, well... It feels like they're on fire. And when I say fire, I'm not talking about what you think, the volatility and fire. I'm talking about the issues of financial independence and the ability to retire early. It's actually a movement. And one of the pioneers and one of the individuals who understands why this is so important and how you can be a part of this, again, I want to repeat fire, financial independence, retiring early is an author that you may be familiar with because, what is it, it's, it's something like 90 million people have visited Financial Samurai, uh, the webpage and the different materials that our guest, Sam Dogan, is more than happy to talk about and the ways that you might perhaps turn your future uh, into something that you could say is on fire. Again, the concept of financial independence and retire early. So Sam, it's good to have you here and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. I'm really happy to be here. When, when we talk about being the financial samurai, just a little bit of, of your background. You were 34 years old when you said, okay, I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. What, what did that mean? Because now uh, it's, more, it's about 10 years later, you've done it quite successfully, and a lot of people want in on this. <laughs> well, I had worked in finance for 13 years, investment banking, equities in particular, uh, from 1999 to 2012. But the global financial crisis really messed me up, as it might be messing people up now in 2022, uh, because I lost 35% of my net worth in six months after saving, diversifying, working hard. And I just thought, you know what, there has to be something better to this than being in the finance industry and losing money, right? That wasn't fun. And we're also public enemy number one being in finance back at that time, even if you had nothing to do with the mortgage industry. So I decided there has to be something better. And so I started Financial Samurai in 2009 as a cathartic way to get over all that loss and all that trauma. And then by 2011, I was like, yeah, this is a pretty fun endeavor that could make some side income and that could grow into something greater. So I decided in 2012 to take that leap of faith. But before I took that leap of faith, I decided to negotiate a severance so I could keep all that deferred cash and stock compensation. Because if I quit, I would have lost all of that. And that severance was really kind of the catalyst for me to take that leap of faith because it provided for about five years of living expenses. I, I, I want to talk right now, because a lot of people are thinking about this, the FIRE movement. 
and yeah. how you have lived that and now share with people how they can live that. And we're going to talk about your new book, Buy This, Not That. But how would you describe your experience with, with FIRE? Well, you know, it came out of an experience of desperation, frankly. Starting in 1999, I had to get into the office at 5.30 a.m. And for a guy who dropped calculus in college at, because it started at 8 a.m., going into five, going into the office at 5.30 a.m. was like torture. And then we had to stay, I had to stay until at least 7 p.m. because I had to connect with the Asian markets. So for me, the, the urgency to save and invest as aggressively as possible so I could get the hell out was right there and then, just at 22 years old in 1999. And so after I was able to achieve my goal and generate about $80,000 a year in passive income in 2012, I said, you know what? I'm out of here, I'm not gonna starve. I can eat McDonald's, ramen noodles if I have to, it doesn't really matter. I'm gonna try to live my life the way I wanna live. And so over the course of the year, 10 years since 2012, uh, it's been a great and uh, you know just wonderful journey full of ups and downs, but mostly ups. And I've noticed that the goalpost has continued to move because $80,000 as a single guy or even as, as a couple with no kids was fine in San Francisco in 2012. But once you had we had our first child in 2017, you know there's preschool expenses, healthcare expenses. We had to pay two thousand dollars a month. It just kept on going up. And then we had our second child in 2019. So my my hope is that people continue to stay flexible in their financial independence journey. Um, first, congratulations on the kids uh, and on your financial journey. I think that we all learn from and the word mistake is very simple, but uh, sometimes a mistake is really just, uh, oh, I didn't expect that. And the lesson is actually how you respond to it. Was there something in your FIRE journey that you could share with us that was, oh, I didn't expect that, and here's how I reacted and responded to it to prove my resilience? Well, I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, first mistake was extrapolating in 2007 my income and wealth. So in 2007, things were fantastic. So I said, hey, I just got promoted to vice president. I made a record amount of money based on my career projection. I'm gonna go buy a vacation property that I don't need that accounted for 35% of my net worth because why not? Uh, I'm gonna continue to make a lot of money. And then of course, the bottom fell out in 2008 and 2009, and I ended up losing probably 50% of the value of that vacation property. So that key lesson is don't extrapolate your income out more than one year because it's very hard to know the future at the same time you also have to continue to try to forecast your future and specifically forecast your misery forecast when you're going to get tired of something so you can take action now so that when that time comes you can pivot so that was consistently uh, one of my big albatrosses on my neck uh, buying at the wrong time and thinking that i would continue to earn the money that i thought i would make recently you know, I've learned, I've made so many mistakes that things have gotten much better. But the thing that another, uh, you know, people pursuing fire need to realize is that, you know, life is not, uh, you know, full of relaxation once you don't have to work for money. You know, life is about purpose and about challenges, and you got to stay flexible and dynamic in your thought process because things are always changing. And so, one of the mistakes I see people who are not retired yet or not financially independent yet is that they rely on the 4% rule, which was created in the 1990s when the 10 year bond yield was at 5 to 6%. And they say, well, I'm going to withdraw at a 4% rate. Well, first of all, of course, 
back then you could withdraw at a 4% rate and not risk losing all your money because you could earn a risk-free five to 6% yield. And so the people who are proponents of that are failing to enter you know, the, the year 2022 when things are different. So it's to be dynamic and always just think, what if, what am I getting wrong? What are my blind spots? You know, we've had, when you say that, we've had almost 20 years of very low yields for the people who might have been planning on the 4%, although recent history, it looks as if those yields are going to be going back up yeah. on, you know, low risk uh, U.S. Treasuries. Let me ask you this, though. It's about passive income. We hear that term thrown around a lot. And you just yeah. described the vacation home you bought. And I, I have friends who are like, well, maybe I'll buy this and then I can rent it out. And I've even thought about that. You know, we've contemplated that. I, I don't want to be a landlord, by the way. When you say passive income, can you help help all of us understand what do you mean by that? Are you looking at what I just described, the landlord experience or something else? So passive income is the opposite of active income and where you don't need to spend any energy or much energy to make that income. So the traditional passive income investments are inve are investments, stock dividend yields, bond yield, bond coupon payments, rental income, which is, I would say, semi-passive, right? You can get lucky and have a great tenant, or you can get very unlucky and have a miserable time and things are breaking all the time. So that is passive income where you don't have to grind so hard to make your money. And so the idea is, you know, if you like your job, great. But the biggest blessing of not liking what you're doing is trying to figure out a way to make passive income so you don't have to continue to do what you don't enjoy doing. And so when I first started in 1999, I enjoyed finance, but I didn't like getting in and working 60 plus hours a week, right? Mm -hmm. So I tried to develop those passive income money soldiers to grow over time. So you know, by the time I was totally burned out by the age of 40, which was my thought process, I would have enough to live and not have to do that job. Uh, when you just said 40, I was thinking I've probably been burned out more times in my life than you've been 40. So it's, I'm, I've got a few years on you. But is that why you wrote the book, um, Buy This, Not That? And you know, this is going to be one of the summer reads for a lot of people. But this concept of creating passive income, is that the goal of this book or is there something else at play? So when I started Financial Samurai in 2009, the opportunity I saw was that there were very few people with finance backgrounds writing about personal finance. And in 2020, when I was offered this book deal by Portfolio Penguin Random House, there were also very few people with finance backgrounds writing about personal finance. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because people who know their, their money are actually just too busy making a lot of money in their investments or something. But I wanted to create um, a book where not only can it help someone achieve financial freedom sooner rather than later from the perspective of someone who's done it and who has a finance background, but to also address a lot of life's biggest dilemmas. Because money at the end of the day is just a tool to try to live a better life. It's options. And Money's about options. It provides you options. I can do this yeah, or I can do that. Exactly. And the thing is, if you choose one option, oftentimes it's that opportunity cost of not choosing that other option. And as I go through my own journey, I'm 45 now, you know, there's so many dilemmas that I've faced and sometimes I've made very wrong choices. And there's a common saying, if I knew then what I know now, things would be better. So the key to never saying that again is to read the perspectives of people who have been there before, highlight 
you know, the pros and cons, the various blind spots you might have, and to help you make more optimal decisions so that you reduce your regret so you can keep on living the life that you want. Um, okay, so I'm going to give you a real-world experience from my own story. And uh, I have friends who are in finance now who say that I did something, I made a mistake is what they said. Yeah. Very simply, I'm not going to give you the numbers, but I had a pension uh, mm -hmm. that I could not control, left mm -hmm. a company, took that that number. It was a different period of time, so it, the, um, the, the, the rates were much different on this. It wasn't the entire retirement planning. It was just a slight portion of it. But put that into an annuity that I know will kick off a guaranteed amount of money. It was a 10-1, so should I die, mother half is going to do just fine. Um, okay. But it, it was a foundational decision with monies that I couldn't control anyway. I'm told repeatedly that was the wrong thing to do. And yet what I think I did was create a form of passive income uh, mm -hmm. in the future for us that we don't have to worry about. Yeah. Was that a mistake? It's not a mistake if you don't think it's a mistake. If it's going to provide that income that will provide you that peace of mind so you can do more of what you want, it's absolutely not a mistake. My my whole epiphany realization was that, and on, on my financial journey was that because of the need for money and financial security, what we do is we hold back on our true beliefs. We hold on hold back on our tongues. We don't speak up for the things we believe in because we don't want to risk ourselves getting blown up in the workplace or in the work environment. And since I've left in 2012, I've realized, man, it feels amazing to be able to speak your truth and to do the things that you want. Because think about all the stresses in your life. Most of the time, it's due to other people. You know, you've got great joy and love, it's due to other people, but most of the stress is due to other people. So if you can figure out a way to not have to kowtow to other people because you're financially secure, it's an amazing feeling that I want other people to feel and realize. Um, from the book, yeah. I'm just gonna pull out a few different things and help us understand uh, the, the issues behind them. But one issue in the book is the best time to own the nicest home you can afford. Having shared with us the vacation home experience, we're watching yeah. mortgage rates as you and I are speaking go up. You know, yeah. five, I think the most recent was almost 6%, which is still when you compare what our parents and grandparents paid in the 80s, 18 plus percent. But then you write, the answer is simple. If you have kids or plan to have kids, the best time to own that dream house is during the time your kids are living with you. But isn't yeah. that also the time where your money is being spent on everything but the house that's going on the kids? Well, if you can think about it, shelter is our fiduciary duty as parents to provide love, shelter, food, clothing, education. And so if you think about buying the nicest home you can afford, it's to, ha it's, it's to do so when you have the most heartbeats in that home because you amortize that cost of that home across more people. So you create more value for more people. Because after they're gone at 18 or maybe 25, you're not gonna go upgrade to a mega mansion bigger house with fewer people in your home. You're gonna keep your home or you're going to downgrade maybe to a condo or a luxury place or whatnot. And so, you know, housing is something that's a fundamental need and that also can provide passive income down the future. Now we can definitely talk about ways to build passive income with real estate, even in this today's market. But a lot of people are conflicted and I look at housing first as a lifestyle decision first with the optionality of being able to make money over time and then rent it out for passive income. Let's, let, let's talk about that because when you talk about housing, we talk about financial issues. And I was going to ask you what's one of the most important financial topics you talk about in the book. But we sometimes forget that what you just said, quality of life. 
People don't equate quality of life with a financial issue, but they're ac actually very much entwined. And you just described it through the house and through your kids. Now describe how you turn that house into whether it be passive income or gain at some point when you sell, especially when, you know, I don't know, I, I'm no housing expert, but we're seeing peak prices now perhaps. Yeah. We're seeing mortgage rates go up, so we know that at least new construction is slowing. Mortgage origination seems to be slowing. How do you make money on that? So finance is yin-yang, so positives and negatives. So if you think about it, rates go up, demand goes down, prices go down, yields, net rental yields go up, right? So if you look at previous cycles, we've had a huge bull run cycle, especially since 2020. I would expect housing prices to fade or go down over the next one to three years, right? It depends on when inflation peaks and how high mortgage rates are and how bad the recession, potential recession gets. But that's the idea. So you build cash now. If you want to buy now, which I don't recommend because this takes a while to fade uh, the real estate market, you want to enter in with a vulture buying mentality where you're looking at pricing it down 10, 20% from January 2022 highs. And then you can lock in and you look at the rents and then you can calculate the yields that way. The easiest way to build passive income with physical real estate is to buy your home, get neutral real estate. So neutral as in you've got to live somewhere, you're going up and down with the real estate market. Enjoy it for three to five to 10 years. You know the house implicitly because you bought it. Other people will probably like it as well. You rent that out. You buy a nicer home if you wish. Live in that for three to 10 years rent that out again and over a career over a lifetime you can build a three to four rental property portfolio quite easily well when you talk about housing prices coming down over the next couple of years you're not the only one who's actually saying that mark zandy uh the economist who's in all the press and we should point out you are cnbc fox business yahoo finance you're you're out there as well okay when we're talking about prices coming down. Does that include even the incredibly, the places with incredible demand? For instance, I'm going to say, you know, Florida, as they say on Long Island, but Florida. Yeah. You know, Miami-Dade County has had 50% increase yeah. in residential prices. Doesn't look like that's going to come down, or is it? Can, can they escape the, uh, what you just described, mortgage rates go up, sales start to fall, prices start to fall? They can't escape it. Uh, that's a cycle of real estate. It's boom bust. Uh, demand is high, you're trying to construct new housing, but there's a lag effect, so it becomes a bullwhip effect, and by the time that new housing comes on the market, oftentimes, you know, the market is rolling over. And that's just the nature of real estate. And once you understand the nature, it's fine. And at the end of the day, real estate prices have to be highly correlated with income. And so if you see prices in Austin, Memphis, Miami, whatever, go up 50%, but income is only up 20%, which is still healthy. It's unsustainable over the long run because at the end of the day, people need their income to buy their down payments and houses. So you can easily see those houses, houses, those cities that had prices go up 40 to 50% since 2020 go down 10%. Why not? It's, it's just, it, it's not even a big deal, actually, if you're actually up 50%. But the irony is that the most expensive coastal cities, like San Francisco and New York City, for example, they didn't go up as much. Maybe they went up 15 to 20% since 2020. Uh, but the income levels are still much higher. And the valuation differences between the coastal city market and the heartland or, you know, the Sunbelt has actually narrowed. And one thing to think about is that foreign real estate demand, which was at over $100 billion of U.S. real estate 
pre-pandemic has been throttled over the past two and a half years, which means that there is potentially over $250 billion in foreign real estate demand for U.S. housing that if the pandemic finally opens up borders, I think that money is going to flood in first to the coasts and maybe then to the heartland. You know, you just explained this in a way that I've not heard anybody on the different financial networks explain it. I want to ask you two um, other forms of passive income. For instance, I, I do not have the stomach to be a bond trader or let alone a day trader. But no. is that the kind of, you know, no. tell me about the other forms of passive income. And I'm I mean, you talk, about, you talk about trading and that's <laughs> the least form of passivity as possible. That is stress inducing, curse your life. I got this wrong all the time. And you got to try to win at least 51% of the time. Yeah. So the other forms of passive income, you can buy bonds. Uh, actually, bonds look quite attractive now with a 10-year bond yield at 3.5%. Mm -hmm. And if inflation is rolling over, let's say, August 2022, buying some bonds right now could actually be quite good. And if you hold it to maturity, especially if they pay you back, which is what the 10-year 10, 10 bond yield will do, treasuries will do, you'll get that passive income. And there's absolutely nothing you need to do. You can buy dividend stocks. Stocks are down 20 plus percent right now. Could be good. I think long run, it's gonna be a good idea. And my favorite passive income, you know, that people can consider is actually creating your own products. If you, you know, when we were growing up, we were filled with creativity. Our teachers made us draw, to write, to sing, to speak, to act. And then as we start getting to the workplace, we just get all, I don't know, corporate. We, we lose that creativity. But creativity is what keeps things going and makes things new. And so creating your own products is actually something that more people should consider. So for example, I wrote another book, uh, an ebook called How to Engineer Your Layoff, Make a Small Fortune by Saying Goodbye. And that book is about how to negotiate a severance. A lot of books about how to get a raise, how to get a promotion. But this is about how to exit with money in your pocket. And that was written in 2012, and it's been updated five times. Uh, but that, that book generates about $40,000 a year in passive income. Wow. <laughs> uh, let's get back to the book, though, that's the, this summer's read. You just brought up employment, the art of getting paid and promoted faster. And you talk about the need when you're in a job to sell yourself to the people who've already hired you. Yes. Discuss that and how that can pay off for somebody. So as you climb the corporate ladder, you'll realize that things become more political. And the reason why things become more political is because the people in power need to hold on to their jobs and the positions of power become fewer and fewer. So it's like a pyramid, right? And so the idea is if you want to continue to get paid and promoted, you have to sell yourself. You should think about selling yourself as much internally as you do externally. Now, if you have great clients and you're generating revenue and income, you have a tremendous amount of value there, right? But at the same time, if you want to ascend within your organization, you have to build, treat your colleagues, your managers, your bosses as also clients where you're promoting them up the chain and they're pulling you up that ladder as well. And this is something that people don't really like to do, right? Office politics. But at the end of the day, people will always take care of people they like the most. It's just human nature. And it can be very subjective. You know, I like Adam, I like Andy because they went to my same school and my kids play together and all that. It's just the way it is. You're never going to know exactly why someone ascended quicker than the other. And you'll always have some head scratchers. 
but it's when you have that relationship where you can just text that boss or whatever and have a direct relationship, that's when you know you're going to actually go places. This is advice you offer in a portion of the book where you're talking about a side hustle. But I'm curious if what you, in this portion of the book, where, what I'm about to read to folks, would apply to those of us who might not have a side hustle but actually have the, the 9 to 5, 40-hour work week job. Yeah. View your weekend as a time to recharge, but also as a time to build the life you ultimately want. The hard work you put in won't last forever, but the results may. What mm -hmm. do you mean by that? Not in the terms of side hustle, but for those of us who have nine to five, 40 hour a week. So it's funny because ever since I started working, I've never worked 40 hours a week. It's always been 60 plus hours a week. Yep. Uh, that's what the finance industry demands. And so when people talk to me about the artificial construct of working eight hours a day, I kind of don't know what that's like. And I've laughed at that uh, internally and I'm envious of people who can work those hours and who can earn a full-time income. However, if you're not satisfied with the income that you have and the life that you want, know that just working 40 hours a week is probably not gonna get there. You have so much time before work starts and after work starts to do something amazing, to try something new. And so what has worked for me and has worked for hundreds of other solopreneurs is that they decided to start these side hustles while they were within the safety of having a day job. And so whether that's waking up at 6 a.m. to do something until 7 a.m. or doing something from 9 p.m. to 12 midnight, that is something that you should think about because your day job provides that luxury for you to do it. Let me, let me wrap up with this. The book is Buy This, Not That. Is there something you want to uh, share with our 400,000 plus uh, who are members of the Yield Street community about the book and what's in it for them? Something, you know, one of the key points you think people will take away from the book? I think one of the key points is to always think in probabilities, not absolutes. So what do I mean by that? If you start thinking in absolutes, in other words, 100%, you must believe with 100% conviction your investment has to be right, or the man or the woman has to love you or like you, you are probably gonna miss out on so many opportunities in your life and you're gonna be stuck with analysis paralysis. So my book has a decision-making framework called the 70-30 decision-making framework. And that framework says that if you believe with a 70% probability or greater that your choice will come out to be the right one, go ahead and take it while having the humility and understanding knowing that 30% of the time you're gonna get it wrong, and so long as you don't blow yourself up or lose your life, you're gonna learn from your mistakes and get better to become a better decision maker. And so you can apply the 70-30 probability, not only in investing, but in every aspect of your life. And that's what I've tried to do with Buy This, Not That. I've used that probability framework to tackle subjects such as send your kids to public school or private school, join a startup or join an established company, have children young or later, be a solopreneur or not. And so, if, again, from the beginning of this podcast, life is full of choices. And if we can move forward with a decision-making framework, it'll help us make better choices. The website is financialsamurai.com. As I said, the book is Buy This, Not That. Sam Dogan. 34 years old when you said, I'm going to do this. I think a lot of people admire uh, your courage to do that, but now can gain from the wisdom you share with a lot of us. All the best to you, sir. Thank you very much for having me.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.